You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We will be in Titus 3 this morning, so if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles together. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, Greg had approached me about the opportunities to preach this Sunday, um, and uh, just said, don't worry about preaching through um, Ezra. Uh, pick something, anything that you would like. Um, and so I put it out there uh, to some friends of mine. I said, hey, what should I be preaching on um, this Sunday? And, and one person said, man, I've been um, reading through Titus, and Titus 3 has just hit me in the gut over and over again over the last week. And so I sat down, and I, I read through Titus, and I came to Titus 3, and it was a, um, a gut check, to say the least. And uh, it just seemed a very timely uh, passage uh, for us to study together this morning. So um, I hope that you will be blessed by it as I have been uh, this week. If you haven't spent any time um, in the pastoral epistles, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, lately, I would highly recommend doing so. Um, there's so much rich theology in there, good practical advice for all Christians, especially Christian leaders. Um, and in this chapter this morning, we're going to see a lot of great um, advice for us as Christians in the public um, uh, public square. So, um, if you would, we'll go ahead and turn there together, um, and we'll read, uh, we'll be uh, verses 1 uh, through 11 this morning. So, read with me. Um, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, uh, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have given us the church, that we as believers can gather together to worship together, to be um, blessed by your word, convicted by your truth. Uh, Lord, that we would, um, this morning, um, open up our hearts and our minds to hear what your spirit is saying to us, that you would allow me to get out of the way so that your words may be spoken clearly. Um, Lord, that we would... um, learn what it means to be Christians in, um, in public and in society and, and how to balance the, that tension between being a part of the world but not of the world. Um, Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask for your mercy this morning. Amen. So since we're starting in the third chapter of Titus uh, this morning, I thought it would be good to, to give us a bit of context of what the, uh, the entire epistle is about. Um, so uh, let's get a bit of an overview. Paul, The apostle um, writes this letter to his protege, Titus, um, and uh, somewhere in the uh, mid-60s A.D., 
Um, Titus was a traveling companion and a, a co-laborer with Paul on his many um, journeys and, and, and preaching expeditions. Um, so he's a trusted lieutenant of Paul. And we don't have the full story about when or, or how or why Paul came to, to Crete, but at some point on his missionary journeys, he stopped over in Crete and he preached the gospel and established a number of house churches. Sometime shortly after that event, these churches began to, to fall back into old ways. There were leaders within the church professing Christians um, who had ulterior motives um, for their positions of authority, and they were leading the people astray, both in their, their doctrine, but also in how they lived their daily lives. And so Paul, um, he, he sends Titus to this, to this island um, and says, I want you to go and sort things out. So Crete is a small to medium-sized island, depending on uh, your view of size, um, is, a, is an island off the coast of Greece, um, and it had a pretty notorious reputation in the day. But it also was a very strategic island. It had a number of very strategic ports. It was a center point for, for trade and, and, and commerce. And so Paul, in bringing the gospel to this island, he did it strategically. He believed that this would be a good place, that the world would come through and connect and then take the gospel back to where they came from. But as I said, this, this island of Crete had a reputation Many of the, uh, the ancient historians and philosophers spoke very poorly of the Cretan people and of the culture of the island. It was very much the Wild West of its day. It was known for debauchery and violence and especially deceitfulness. The men of Crete were often mercenaries. Most of them had served in some sort of mercenary capacity to the highest bidder, either for Rome, against Rome, however, um, the cities were known to be dangerous and, and uh, just lawless in every sense of the word. And yet, Paul saw Crete for the potential that it had as being a strategic outpost for the gospel. Nevertheless, its reputation preceded it. The Cretan people were known to be deceitful, known to be liars. In fact, there, the Greeks had a word, kritizo, which was taken from the name of the island, which meant liar. And while it's not quite as common anymore, we also use that expression, Cretans, to refer to somebody who is both um, a liar and not exactly intelligent. So his reputation preceded it. But other than just the violence and the deceit, they also had cultural issues that made the gospel and, and uh, preaching the gospel and the establishment of churches difficult. Crete was very proud of its uh, religious heritage. They believed that this was the island on which Zeus was born and where he would eventually be buried. And so Zeus was kind of their patron saint. They were very proud of this fact. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you'll know Zeus was not exactly an uh, upstanding character. And his reputation for deceitfulness and lying was, um, at very least, horrific um, in, in what he did. So when you take all these things together, you have kind of a, a perfect storm of issues for any sort of church planting effort. You have a people known for their deceitfulness and their adoration for a God who practiced deceitfulness. And it was almost accepted and encouraged in the culture to, 
to be deceitful towards one another. It was seen as almost virtuous. So this is the environment in which Paul is sending Titus into and saying, hey, good luck. So naturally there are some issues here when you're preaching the gospel, when you're trying to establish churches um, with any sort of assimilation of the culture. That tension between being of the world, but not, or in the world, but not of the world, is especially uh, prevalent here. So when Titus comes to these people, Paul decides to write instructions for him um, to give him almost a strategic plan for how to help turn around um, the reputation that the church now had on this island. In his commentary on, on Titus, um, the theologian John Stott uh, breaks down the content of the entire letter into three basic categories, and it's this, these categories, this strategic plan that Paul lays out for Titus um, that makes the, the content of the letter. The first section, um, well, so these three areas, these three arenas, um, are meant to address the three arenas of the Christian life in general. So these three arenas were first the church. So if you read chapter 1, uh, chapter 1 is mostly um, Paul telling Titus how to, um, how to uh, reform, that's the word, reform the church. Um, first off, by establishing qualified elders. One of the many problems in the church at Crete was that the elders, those men and women, or men who were in charge of the church, um, were obviously not doing uh, their job because the reputation of the church on the island was poor, and they were leading their people astray for, for motives that we can't uh, know for sure. But, but first, so he needs to reform the church. And in reforming the church and establishing good leaders and elders within the, uh, the church, that will help transform the home and the family life. And as the home and the family life in chapter 2 is transformed, then we can help transform the world and the culture around them. And so that is where we are in chapter 3, the, the Christian's life in the public square. And Stott also breaks down how he addresses each of these arenas into two basic categories. First, what Paul does is he establishes the duty so of the elders, of the, of the husbands and, and parents, and then of the leaders of the church um, and the Christian life. And then he backs it up with doctrine. He says, this is your job, and this is the doctrine that makes it possible. I need you, Titus, to go and teach these things, to reform the church, remind them of their duty, remind them of the gospel that they believed in. And so in, our, in this final chapter of Titus, we will get into the doctrine and duty of the church in the public arena. So Christians and culture. It is a <clears throat> touchy subject, to say the least. And debates on this topic have raged for centuries. What is a Christian's relationship with the culture around it? And for centuries, the church has differed on that very subject. For some, it meant reclusiveness. It meant hiding in the deserts and in the mountains, removing oneself from society so as not to be tainted by it, living aesthetic lives, and saying, culture is corrupt and evil, and we will have no part in it. And then, on the other extreme, you had those who said, well, we don't really need to be any different. We just, you know, we've got the gospel. That's cool. So we'll just assimilate into the culture. 
completely, which is more the issue here on Crete. The Cretan culture was influencing the Christian culture rather than the other way around. And so this debate has gone for for many years, for many centuries, and, and while there are few absolutes when it comes to how a Christian needs to engage with the culture, Scripture is far from silent on the issue, and it is this text that we're going, to be discuss- we're going to be studying this morning that is one of the pillars of the New Testament teaching on the subject. Before we jump into the message this morning, I wanted to provide a, a, a warning and a request. <clears throat> the warning is that we're going to be discussing subjects like government, which, will be, which people may have strong feelings about. Now, I promise you this morning, I'm not up here to, uh, to discuss politics or to give campaign promises or anything like that, so don't worry. But the request is that because we're going to be dealing with difficult topics, that you would hold off before making judgment. That you would hear what the Lord is saying to us through, Titus, uh, through Paul in Titus and through me this morning. So with that in mind, we'll jump into our passage this morning, starting with verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. And in these verses, we, we begin to uh, get into the duty of what Paul is, uh, as Paul is asking Timothy to teach the people of Crete, to remind them of their duty in the Christian public life. Remind them, he says, right off the bat, remind them. This is not a new teaching. This is not something that they have not heard before, an expectation that they have never had before. They are to be reminded of this. Paul is instructing Titus to remind the Cretan elders of what they have already heard from him. And this is a consistent theme within uh, Paul's writings throughout Scripture. One of the most common warnings in all of Scripture for the Christian is against forgetfulness. We see it throughout the Old and New Testament. One of the things the people of God have always struggled with was forgetting. Forgetting what God had taught them. Forgetting what He had commanded them. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 13. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. But they soon forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. It is our heritage in many ways to be forgetful of what God has commanded us. And so Paul is reminding them, reminding them of the duty that they have. Likewise, it is important for us to be reminded constantly we too are forgetful. Even as mature, uh, mature Christians, as mature believers, we forget some of the most elementary teachings and we take them for granted, believing that we've somehow mastered them or moved beyond them. And I'm as guilty as any on that charge. One silly little example would be, as an insurance claims adjuster, my vocation, um, one of the overarching truths, one of the, the foundational practices is, um, that, that dominates our job is if it's, if it's not in the file, it didn't happen. 
So we, I deal on the auto side. I deal with people's car wrecks, and, and so I have to help coordinate repairs and pay people money for their, their car wrecks. And if I were to talk to a, a customer and, and walk them through, say, the, the rental process of what's going to happen when their vehicle goes into a shop, but I don't note that conversation pretty thoroughly. We know what's going to happen. People are out for themselves. They're unfortunately dishonest and and they're going to throw you under the bus for their benefit nine times out of ten. So if I told somebody something and they failed and and then I failed to note it in my file, guess what's going to happen next week? They're going to call in. They're going to say, well, you never told me that. And then who's going to be wrong? It's going to be me. If it's not in the file, it didn't happen. It's an elementary teaching, and it, and it is one that will come back to bite you over and over again in that job if you don't heed it and don't remember it constantly. And we have these elementary teachings in all facets of our lives. When doing construction, you measure twice so that you can cut once. Basic. You look both ways before crossing the street. Basic. You never, under any circumstances, go and eat at Waffle House. It's basic. I can't stress that point enough, guys. It's elementary. And so Paul is directing Titus to remind the Cretan elders of these elementary teachings, to be submissive of the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. But as we read this, I'm guessing... Um, you have identified um, where the turbulent parts of this passage are going to come from. As soon as we start reading the first verse, two words jump out at us. Submissive and obedient. Submission and obedience are not uh, words that our culture uh, relates very well to. In fact, our culture has a big problem with those two words. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think on a fundamental level, it's because as a culture, we value more than just about anything else our independence and our self-reliance. I believe as Americans, we especially find the commands in Scripture to be submissive and obedient to be the most difficult to square with. Just a a brief jaunt through American history will show you um, that we are a nation founded on an inherent disdain for authority. I'm a bit of a history nerd. Um, I enjoy those boring history books that people read, those biographies about dead presidents, and especially podcasts about various different historical events. Um, I don't know about you guys, a little off topic, but um, I don't know if you've seen those progressive Becoming Your Parents commercials. I relate on those at a deep, deep level. In the last year, we bought a house. Um, I am soon to be a dad, and so I am slowly becoming my own father, and it's terrifying. Um, but one of the commercial that gets me the most in that is, is that scene where um, the guy is sitting on his couch and he's reading a book about old submarines. And the guy asks him, you know who else reads books about old submarines? He's like, my dad. Yeah. My dad reads old history books. I like old history books. I'm becoming my dad. It's scary. But I, I love history. So I love to look through and, 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 and read about these old historical events, especially because 
um, the most interesting parts of history are the, the wars and the battles and the revolutions. Um, when you get to reading about the American Revolution, you're, pretty, you're struck pretty quickly by the fact it mostly stemmed out of our lack of uh, respect for authority. Um, we fought a war with England because we didn't like taxes, and we fought a war with ourselves because we didn't like the federal government telling the states what to do. We protest, we riot, we boycott regularly, and there's not an insignificant portion of our political landscape that believes that getting rid of the government altogether would be what was best for us. So as a culture, we have an inherent issue with authority. And yet, here we are, sitting face to face with a teaching that is telling us that we need to submit to rulers and authorities. And I believe, while that's a difficult pill to swallow, that if we put some perspective on that commandment, then we will see that we have it a little bit better than what they did. As discussed earlier, this this letter is being written in the mid-60s A.D., during the reign of everyone's favorite psychopath, Nero. So Paul is telling these rebellious Cretan elders and believers to submit, not just to anyone, but to Nero. The man who would systematically murder hundreds of thousands of their Christian brothers and sisters, and and depending on the exact dating of this book, which we don't know, maybe already has. I don't know about you, but that's a gut check. So as previously discussed, I'm a history nerd, and one of the, the ways that that manifests itself is a, a little podcast called the History of Rome podcast. I'd recommend it if you guys are history nerds as well. Uh, this guy from Portland just sat down in 2007 and decided, what the heck, I'm going to do a, an hour-long podcast um, about the history of Rome each week for what ended up being like five years, and started with like the Latin kings all the way to the, the fall of Constantinople. And so as you're listening through the histories of Rome, you get, begin to realize very quickly that even the good emperors of Rome were pretty horrible people. But Nero, if there were a Mount Rushmore of the worst people in history, much less emperors of Rome, Nero would probably be on that, that mountain. The only reason he doesn't win the title of worst emperor ever is because of his relatively short stint on the throne. Because he was murdered for being the worst emperor ever. So it's all well and good for somebody like Jesus to tell us to pay our taxes to Caesar and give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God's what is God's, when he's talking about Caesar Augustus. Not a great guy, but by comparison, might as well have been an angel. And it's another thing when Paul in Romans 13 is telling us that we need to honor the the governing authorities when those governing authorities are bumbling Uncle Claudius. But when we're talking about a tyrannical psychopath like Nero, and yet we still have Paul telling them that they need to submit to his government, that's a very different story. And to make things more complicated, this island of Crete, which had been conquered by Rome for nearly a century at this point, they were not fans of this Roman government. The historian Polybius says that the Cretan people, again, infamous reputation, that they were constantly involved in insurrections. They hated, they hated the shackle of Rome being over them. 
And so, Paul is telling them again, these Cretans who hate Rome, that they need to not only stop the insurrections, but they actually need to submit and obey this monster. And so I think we should stop and take notice. Now for a caveat, so I can feel the tension in the room. Paul tells, uh, when Paul tells Titus and the Cretans to submit and to obey the governing authorities, he is not calling them to a wholesale acceptance of their rule. And he's not calling them to a complicit obedience to every sinful edict that they declare. Of course, emperor worship is not being mandated here. What Paul is saying is that we are not called to just fall in line so that we don't make Rome mad at us. It isn't pacification. It isn't pragmatism. It's strategic. As with anything, I think taking a closer look here will help us better understand this. So, again, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. The first question then, if we're going to submit to these governing authorities, is from a biblical perspective, and thus from the perspective of our Creator, what is the primary role of government? I can feel it. Everybody's... From a biblical perspective, not a political one, what is the role of government? We get a hint from Peter and Paul in the New Testament as uh, in their writings at a very simple mandate handed down from God. The fundamental role of government as handed down by God is to promote good and punish evil. The specifics, we don't go into those, but that is the mandate of government from God, to promote good and to punish evil. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made to all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Romans 13, 4. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the, the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 1 Peter 2, 13-14 Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish who do, those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing so you should put, uh, silence the ignorance of foolish people. So this seems to be consistent with their teachings. Now how good is promoted and evil, uh, and how evil is punished, or even what the definitions of good and evil are, are not the task of our text today. But suffice it to say that there are and have been debates as to these kinds of definitions for centuries. And it is the role of every generation to put a context to these commands as we will all face different challenges. So if that is the government's mandate from God, and it is, then our mandate to the government is a divinely given one as well, to submit and to obey. If God is sovereign over our governments, and he is, then it stands that no government or authority exists exists which God has not meticulously ordained. It also stands that if God's primary motivation and our chief end as mankind is to glorify God, 
then these powers and institutions and authorities that God himself has established will bring him glory, either willfully or otherwise. We see this phenomenon throughout scriptures. In fact, we've seen it in our study of Esther up to this point. God using Esther to influence a pagan government to bring about justice. God uses his people in the midst of pagan cultures to enact his will. Sometimes that's to punish his people for their wrongdoing, for their forgetfulness, as we see with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But at the same time, the best possible thing for those cultures, for those communities, is to have God's people in their midst, whether they know it or not. We see this while Israel is in exile. God truly embeds his people within the pagan culture. Why? Again, it isn't out of fear or appeasement, but a much greater purpose. Paul believed and taught that it was because all of the Christian life is mission-oriented. There was for Paul no distinction between the religious and the civic duty. The religious was the primary, and it invaded every single bit of his life. And that is what he taught to his people. All of life was to be in service to the mission of God's kingdom come. In our submission to pagan governments and authorities, we do two important works. We glorify God, and we witness to the culture around us. Let Jeremiah and Ezra serve as examples. Jeremiah 29.7 But we seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it is in it welfare, you will find your welfare. Ezra 6, 9-10 And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, or burnt offerings to, God, to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let them be given uh, in that day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Jesus said we were to be salt and light city on a hill, by living, by living peaceful and quiet lives in submission to the authority above us, doing good and living at peace with everyone in so much as it is in our control. We influence the culture around us. There is another caveat to be made here, that Paul's command here to submit and obey and our duty to seek justice and love mercy are not mutually exclusive. We could spend another hour talking about this very subject, but let me direct you to a sermon which I believe will be a blessing to you as it was a blessing to me. Tim Keller, uh, back in 2018, gave a, uh, an address to the British Parliament at their an annual prayer breakfast in which um, he spoke to them about the Christian's role in the 21st century culture. Um, the title of the message being, What Can Christians Offer Society in the 21st Century? And in that message, he talked about us being salt, salt and light. And one important message from that, or one important note from that message is that as salt in our culture, we have three important roles, two of which are to enrich society. And he addressed historically how Christian culture has enriched the pagan culture around it by building hospitals, by 
funding benevolent ministries, great scientific discoveries, the, the challenging of immoral and unjust policies. And the second is that we preserve society from decay. We prevent the pagan culture around us from destroying itself and falling into a complete and utter moral decay. And we do so by fighting against unjust policies, protecting the innocent and the weak. I encourage you to watch the message and be blessed by it, but we not only serve as a witness of God's glory in our obedience, but we also enrich and season the culture around us by being salt and light. As we come to an end of this section, I want to remind us so that we can all be on the same page here. We are not saying that the church's goal should be, is or should be, the peaceful coexistence of the government as an end unto itself. Nor should the church's image or public respectability be an end unto themselves. Rather, um, as the uh, commentarian Philip Towner notes in his commentary, the church's subjection to the state, worked out in public Christian service, has the redemptive or redemption of creation as its goal. Not simply peaceful existence with a secular power structure. So it's not for the sake of getting along with the government that we do this. We do this with the goal of redemption, both for the culture and ourselves. Our submission to the ruling authorities is part of God's plan to bring about the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer that his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the stark reality of Christian history shows us that the shape and the potential of that coexistence and that fulfillment will not always look the same. Generations of Christian martyrs are witnesses who give a sobering testimony of the partnership, that this partnership does not always mean prosperity. Jürgen Moltmann, um, who's quoted in this Towner commentary, says, again and again, there have been many times when the people of God are persecuted and martyrdom has been enjoined. Then nothing more is possible in history. That is, the night when no one can work. Then all that is left is to endure to the end, and in that endurance to be saved. The possibilities of history narrow down, and all that remains is the sole decision to confess or to deny. Yet again, there have been, uh, there have been times of open doors and favorable opportunities for mission, for diaconal service to the poor, for the liberation of the oppressed. Then we stand face to face with an almost unlimited possibility of that which can be realized. And we are filled with joyful confidence that this world can be made better. The kingdom of God is at hand. Then hope turns into action and we can anticipate today something of the new creation and all things which Christ will complete. These are the experiences of history's consummation. New Testament writers lived in a tension between these two extremes and they sought to prepare the generations that would come and equip them for either extreme. You and I can confidently say now that we live in a time of open doors and favorable opportunities for mission. But that day will not always be the case. A time is coming when those doors will close, and the night which no one can work will come. 
The key for us now is to be good stewards of the time that we have. To use our witness to its greatest effect by living above reproach, living at peace with all, ready for every good opportunity that comes our way. So how do we do this? Paul provides Timothy with a pretty thorough but not exhaustive list. He says to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all. This list, it seems elementary, but again, Paul told Titus to remind his church that we should be reminded as well. These teachings that should be elementary, that should be basic, and yet we, myself included, often forget them. Paul was instructing them to live these lives out in the public square. They were to do good works in the market, to speak evil of no one in the forum, to avoid quarreling and be gentle in their daily interactions. And so we too are called to avoid quarreling and to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy, perfect courtesy toward all people. Do we exhibit these principles? Do we show perfect courtesy to everybody in Walmart, at the baseball field, in our workplaces, to that stranger in traffic who just cuts you off? In doing these simple things, in living out the basics of Christian doctrine, we in part accomplish our mission to make disciples of all nations. So let's recap what Paul has instructed so far. First is that we need to submit to our governing authorities to be obedient to them. Why? Because they were ordained by God for his glory and we further the mission of Christ and the gospel by being faithful believers and good citizens. We also know that if government authorities, um, we also know that if the uh, government and authorities we submit to break their God-given command to promote good and punish evil by instructing us to worship someone or something other than God the Father, then we must, as Peter said, obey God rather than men. But the bar for such disobedience, if the life of Peter and Paul are examples, is much higher than we think. There you go. We can go ahead and sing a couple rounds of Just As I Am, and I'm sure everybody will be transformed. But Paul didn't see fit to just end his instruction there, so neither shall I. Ultimately, Paul understood, and so should we, that this instruction, this duty that he has now presented to the Cretans, is impossible for us to accomplish in and of ourselves. Ultimately, you and I do not have the ability to live out this calling. We are creatures of unbelievable pride and selfishness. We constantly yearn for self-justification. We just want our own way. Mankind has raged against itself for millennia because one power structure says, If you just follow me, everything will be fine. And then yet another one will say, now if you follow me, everything will be fine. And then we fight each other. Again, if you could simplify history down to one phrase, it's man fighting man. Just take a look at the culture around you. Everyone believes they are right. And if you disagree with them, 
you're a bigot and a racist or a sexist or an ageist. It's all self-justification. The belief is that if we could just get power and control, everything would be fine. We will make everything perfect. If we can just have our way, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paul understands this truth. And so he takes this instruction to Titus to its natural conclusion, the gospel. Paul understands that what the Cretans need more than anything is to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus. And so that brings us to the doctrine of the Christian public life. Verses 3 through 6. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, or disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Lord and God and Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. In this section, Paul uses a familiar convention, one that Towner calls the formerly now formula. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But Paul uses this all the time. He uses this formula to show what was and contrast it to what is currently. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Notice the past tense. We were. We are no longer. And so he is instructing Titus to remind the people of this fact. And then we're treated to what I can only call the unregenerate person's greatest hits. You know, such hits as foolishness, or as Towner translates it, uh, spiritual obtuseness, which is just perfect. Spiritual obtuseness. It really should be the title of my autobiography. Literally, he means ignorance of the things of God. So we were foolish. Or disobedient. There's that word again. Disobedient to whom? Well, to everyone, really. But more specifically, we're disobedient to God. We've rejected God. Led astray. Literally, deceived. Those who were without the Holy Spirit are living in a state of being led astray by sin blind to God's nature, but it can also be referring specifically to the Cretan elders who were both being led astray by the culture but also leading their people astray. So then Paul gives them a reminder of the dark reality of this life. We're slaves, not in control of any of this. Slaves to sin, slaves to the pursuit of pleasure and passion that cannot be satisfied. And as a result of those things, lastly, we are hated by others and we hate one another. When our lives are consumed by our own pursuit of of passions and pleasures, when we have no sort of obedience, when we are foolish of the nature of God, when we are being led astray, we cannot help but hate the people around us because they are objects between us and what we want. 
So Paul lists these characteristics to provide a contrast to us, and a stark one at that, of the differences between how Christians should be known, the life that they should live and their reputations, and that of the unregenerate. And honestly, between verses 1 through 3 there, this would make for a real depressing sermon, right? Then verse 4 comes. Praise the Lord, verse 4 comes. But, it is my opinion that there is no more important word in all of Pauline theology than but. He uses it with such authority and power to signal that which was and that which now is. Verse 4, but. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. So something has changed. What was our life into what now is. These rebellious and deceitful, no good Cretans were hopelessly lost. And Paul wants to once again remind them of the dire state in which Christ found them. Then he reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them that Christ, in His mercy, has saved them by His righteousness alone, washing them, renewing them, justifying them. Not because of their goodness, of which they had none, but by His grace alone. Amen. The entire section hangs on the phrase, hinges on the phrase, He saved us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, Paul is teaching them some very basic theological mathematics. God, in His mercy, has washed us, regenerated us, renewed us through the Holy Spirit, and by the death and resurrection of the Son, has justified us. And what did we bring to the equation? As the oft-quoted quib goes, we contributed nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. What a Savior. What a Savior. So it is by this power alone that we live out our call in the Christian life to be salt and light in the world. It is through the power of the gospel. It is not by our own goodness or innate um, righteousness, because we have none, but it is through the empowerment of God our Savior, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can even begin to live out this calling. We had no hope but to live in hatred of each other and ourselves without the transforming power of Jesus. In His grace, He reached out to us and opened our eyes. He turned the lights on in our hearts And these characteristics from verse 3 forever changed in the simultaneous and concurrent events of the regenerating and renewal 
of the Holy Spirit and the justification of the Son. So after this rich theological reminder where their salvation comes from and thus where it rests, Paul turns to another common refrain in his canon of Scripture. The saying is trustworthy, verse 8. And I want you to insist on these things so that you, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So this teaching that he's giving Titus on salvation is not only trustworthy, but Paul is telling Titus not to have any flexibility in that teaching. There is to be no bending or concession made on even a single point of the gospel. There is no assimilating it. This is not only because the mission of the gospel is at stake. See Paul's message to the Romans and the Galatians on the futility of other gospels. But also because without it, you and I cannot even carry out the most basic of Christian commands to devote themselves to good works. Orthodoxy promotes orthopraxy. Right belief promotes right action. If we don't understand the doctrine of the Christian life, then we can't possibly hope to understand the duty of the Christian life. Our doctrine will empower us to fulfill our duty. So what are the good works that we're supposed to devote ourselves to? So I just wanted to give a few examples of how I've seen this play out in my own life. I have a couple of good friends, brothers in the faith who have been with me for many years. One of them's name is Kevin. Kevin is one of the most gentle human beings I've ever met. He embodies that that command to be kind and gentle to all people. There's not a person who has ever met Kevin who does not feel loved by him and does not have respect for him. And then there's my, my buddy Travis. I met Travis because we lived in close proximity to each other in high school. He was a faithful believer then, and even in my own dark days, he put an arm around me. One of the things that strikes me the most about those early years of our friendship was he had this, this little cabin. It was almost like a, a little home away from home. It was literally like 20 feet from his actual house, but fully furnished little clubhouse almost. But he, he used it in hospitality to bring in guys who would be considered uh, the lowest on the totem pole in his community. His little small town, the, the awkward homeschooler, the, the outcast in the high school, the guys who didn't take hygiene seriously or have what anyone would consider to be any sort of popularity, which is why I was friends with him. But we got together every weekend with these guys. We just hung out. Gave them a place to, to be accepted, to be loved. That was his legacy in his hometown. And there are guys to this day who 
probably the only time in their life where they've ever experienced genuine Christian brotherhood and friendship was in that little, what we called the shanty. And even here within our own church, I am constantly bombarded by stories of, of great hospitality and generosity, of love, of gentleness and respect. You see, the Christian life, it doesn't have to be complicated. The gospel is simple. The Christian life is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. By living out the command to to love one another, to be gentle, to be obedient, to, to live at perfect courtesy with one another. We do more for the public witness of Christ than than just about anything else we could do. We have a number of business owners in our congregation. Sean and Rick and Joe. By simply being godly men, owning a business and running a business, by dealing fairly with people, by being reputable and gentle and kind, you do more for the Christian witness than than most preachers. Those are simple things. By simply being an honest business owner, you can see the gospel reach even the darkest of places. By you and I being good employees, by being good middle managers, we do more for our public witness. Finally, Paul ends his letter with some very practical instruction and advice for Titus. Verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. We don't know what those controversies were, um, but we do know from the context of the issues that were going on in the Cretan church, we can make some assumptions. Paul isn't messing around here. He has seen how these troublemakers have destroyed the reputation of the church on Crete, and he is coming for blood. These elders will not be allowed to continue to destroy the name of Christ on Crete. And so he is instructing Titus to warn them once, and then warn them twice, and then excommunicate them. Get them out of there. Unity in the body is paramount. And if foolish controversies and dissensions and quarrels about the law cause cause disunity, something has to be done. And there should be a warning for us as well today. There are no shortage of foolish controversies to engage with. There are plenty of quarrels about the law. None of them are profitable They are worthless for the Christian. With view of this previous instruction, Paul reminds them one last time that the Christian public witness is on the line. How they act towards their culture, how they act towards the authorities, how they act towards their fellow man will directly affect their ability to carry out the mission successfully. So I want to close with this. 
When I came to this text, I believed it was a timely one. We live in a divided age, which is made all the worse by the political events of the last few months and by the fact that we no longer have the ability in most situations to meet face-to-face with people. In many ways, I wonder if the world at large sees us as a Christian church in America and thinks that we're no better than those rebellious Cretans. And like those Cretans, we are in danger of being led astray by false teaching and by our own forgetfulness. We're in danger of forgetting the basic but most vital part of our Christian duty. So let us be reminded this morning that we as a church, Big C, have taken, uh, partaken in more than our fair share of foolish controversies and dissensions and quarrels. All one needs to do is scroll through social media for about five seconds and you will see that is true. In our culture, and especially in the midst of a pandemic, social media has become our public square. And it is thus not exempt from the commands to treat everyone with gentleness and respect, to be ready to do good works, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. I don't know about you, but those are three things that I do not see being lived out on social media. By anyone. And so it is time for you and I to take a hard look at how we are interacting with our fellow man digitally. To remember to show perfect courtesy before we comment to avoid foolish controversies before we hit that share button. To think twice before posting our political opinions for the sake of being quarrelsome. Let us be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. The commands of verses 1 and 2 apply to every aspect of our public life. We have a duty to live those things out even online because our mission is to make disciples. Disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. That is our mission. We are not called to make disciples of our political parties or our conspiracy theories or our hobby horses or our soapboxes. Those things will fall short. But Mark, you understand, I have to pwn those libs and I have to embarrass those MAGA-11 fundies. I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm not one of those kinds of Christians. Trust me, I know. I struggle with it every single day. But we can overcome that. We can overcome that overwhelming desire to be proved right and to have the last word. Now how is that, you ask? For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. Let astray, slaves, various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating each other. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us from having to be right. He saved us from having to justify ourselves. He saved us from hating each other and being hated by everyone. He saved us 
not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing, the regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So that being justified, His grace might become, by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So brothers and sisters, let us take our mission seriously. More seriously than anything else in this world. Let us fulfill our duty empowered by the most important doctrine in the universe. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't do this by waging a culture war or by unquestioned assimilation to our culture. We do so by being the best citizens of the empire, by promoting what is good, and at times often defining and showing what good is. We are called to wisely participate in our culture, rejecting that which is corrupt and embracing that which is good. And if we can learn to do this, we can learn how to live at peace with one another in devotion to Jesus Christ and to the common good, then we can show the world the true beauty of our Savior Jesus.